Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Gabe Brown is one of the pioneers of the current soil health movement and a proponent of regenerative agriculture. He's the author of Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey to Regenerative Agriculture, co-founder of the Soil Health Academy, and co-owner of Understanding Ag, an agricultural consulting agency. Gabe's property, called Brown's Ranch, is a diversified, no-till, 5,000-acre farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. We talked about Gabe's transition away from conventional agriculture and some of the lessons he learned along the way, including his six principles of soil health. We also talked about some of the economic policies surrounding agriculture and the hurdles farmers and ranchers face. Gabe's entire message is about farming in nature's image by understanding the biological processes taking place beneath our feet, rather than trying to fight them. You can find his book wherever they're sold, and you can see him now in the documentary Kiss the Ground on Netflix for a good intro to regenerative agriculture. Folks, I'm really enjoying meeting these people through the podcast and would greatly appreciate your support in spreading the word. Please share the podcast on social media, tag some friends, leave a review on iTunes. All that stuff really helps with the algorithms and whatnot, believe it or not. Now, on to my conversation with Gabe. All right, I'm joined by Gabe Brown of Brown's Ranch. Gabe, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good to be with you today. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I've uh, I've been a fan of your work. I I listened to your book, uh, narrated by you, Dirt to Soil, and then uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking to a few people who are implementing your principles of soil health. So this is a treat for me. Uh, thank you. For the listeners. Can you kind of introduce yourself and, and where you are in the country and, and what you guys are all about? Sure. So uh, I ranch just outside of Bismarck, North Dakota. I was born and raised in town, took an interest in agriculture, married my high school sweetheart, and we uh, were able to purchase part of the ranch from her parents and uh, in 1991 and have grown that ranch to... Today, it's approximately 6,000 acres, and our son, Paul, now operates the ranch. I spend my time basically traveling, promoting regenerative agriculture. Uh, I'm part owner of a consulting business called Understanding Ag, and currently we're consulting on about 30 million acres across North America and in the UK. And then we have a nonprofit called Soil Health Academy, and we, uh, our goal there is to educate anyone and everyone who will listen as to the benefits of regenerative agriculture. Excellent. Yeah, I know you're reaching a ton of people through your writing and, and recently the film on Netflix, which I just saw this week. Um, you've been doing this since I've been alive, essentially. Um, can you tell me about when you purchased the, the uh, 
the acreage back then, what was the conventional agriculture in the area? And what, you know, what did you learn from your, your in-laws? Sure. You're making me feel old here, but that's okay. <laughs> I am. So, that. uh, no, I learned to farm and ranch from my father-in-law and he was very conventional. He was, uh, full-blown tillage, use of synthetics, fertilizers, and fungicides, seed treatment, what was needed, uh, growing monoculture, small grains, primarily spring wheat, oats, barley, occasionally flax, and, and set stocking rate on the cattle. That's how I learned. But one thing about me not being from a farm, I was very, very inquisitive, and I'm always trying to learn new things. And I had read and studied about no-till, and so after my wife and I were able to purchase the ranch in 1991, uh, I uh, had started to use uh, grazing practices. At that time, it was called rotational grazing. Now we call it adaptive grazing. Mm. Uh, I don't care what you call it. All I care about is that you're using time-tested ecological principles to move the resource forward. So I started doing some of that. I went 100% zero-till in 1994. Uh, I should back up just a second. I was fortunate when we bought the ranch, we did some baseline soil testing, and we found that organic matter levels were from 1.7 to 1.9% on the cropland acres due to the intensive tillage and previous management practices. Yeah. We also found that water infiltration rates were approximately a half of an inch per hour. Okay, 1994, I went 100% no-till. 1995, the day before I was gonna start combining spring wheat, we lost 100% of our crop to hail. 1996, we lost 100% again. 1997, we dried out, never combined an acre. In 1998, we lost 80% of our crop to hail. Well, I tell people those were four extremely tough years to go through. The end of it, the banker was no longer willing to loan me any money. I had to figure out how am I going to make this soil productive without all of these added inputs. And it sent me on a path of learning. And I was very, very fortunate. I met a lot of good people at the right time that really helped educate me as to how soil functions. And it bothered me. I'd spent four years at the university. I got a couple of degrees in agriculture and none of in none of those courses did they explain really how not only soils, but ecosystems function. How does the nutrient mm -hmm. cycle really work? How does the water cycle work? How does the energy cycle work? They don't tell you things like that, yet those are key to profitability on any farm or ranch. Well, I, I tell people that although those four years were extremely hard to live through, they, they were the best thing that could happen to me because think of what was happening. I was actually learning the principles, uh, the six principles of soil health as these events were occurring. Um, maybe I should run through those six principles. Huh? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we can go through those in just a moment. I just have a question about that time of your life. Um, first of all, did you have crop insurance when all that happened? Yeah, so starting out, I just had the basic federal crop insurance. I did not have any hail insurance because my father-in-law had farmed here 35 years and only had a couple minor hailstorms. So wow. it just wasn't a good investment. Now, after the first year, I sure did. But 
realized that uh, yields were not that great. So the crop insurance didn't even really cover all the cost. Um, so we were going backwards every year. Uh, yeah. I was able to make the interest payments, but not any of the operating note or principal payments. Wow. And then since then, have you dealt with similar events or uh, has it been smooth sailing? <laughs> well, uh, just the past two years, for example, uh, 2020 was the second driest year ever recorded here in Bismarck. 2021 was not only the driest, but it was the hottest year ever yeah. recorded. Wow. And yet, uh, what we find now is our soils are much, much more resilient because I mentioned to you what the levels, organic matter levels were like when we bought the ranch. Today, those same fields run from 5.3 to over 8% organic matter. And our water infiltration has gone from a half of an inch per hour to now we can infiltrate over 30 inches per hour. And it has never, ever... Uh, Bismarck, North Dakota has never recorded 30 inches of precipitation in a year, let alone an hour. So, <laughs> so yeah. what that says is that basically every raindrop that falls or snowflake that drops on our land, that moisture is going to be able to be infiltrated. And then due to the amount of organic matter, in other words, carbon we have in our soils, it can stay there. And so it makes us very resilient to these droughts. So after after those events in when you kind of got your start, you entered what I consider uh, a period of, a long period of experimentation, where you kind of said, "All right, we've got to we got to change things up. Let's try this, this, and that. Let's become more resilient." And it sounds like part of that was due to the fact that you didn't come from you didn't grow up practicing agriculture, so you're maybe able to bring a new spin to it. You know, think outside the box a little bit. Uh, did you have any like total flops during that time where you tried something that just didn't yeah, work? I realized my, my experimentation, I've always been very inquisitive and, and I don't have a fear of risk. I, I'm, I'm willing to take risk if it's calculated risk. And what I tell people, you give me 75% there. If I, if I believe in that, Hey, this is, you know, I've done the background work and this makes sense. I'm going to try it because if I stumble, at least I'm going to fall forward. If it's 75% positive, I'm falling forward. And if I'm falling forward, I'm making progress. So during those years of, of, uh, of crop failure, I was actually starting to do some experimentation then. For instance, that first year, we lost 1,200 acres of spring wheat to hail. I'd already combined a pea crop. I was already diversifying the crop rotation as compared to what my father-in-law had. So the next year, I put in more peas because, hey, I got that crop off early. It was successful. you know. I And then uh, that second year, I added uh, winter triticale and hairy vetch to the crop rotation, fall seeded. It, it added some diversity, gave me the opportunity to either graze it or hay it the next spring or combine it. You know, I was, I was very early on experimenting with different things. Then in 1998, that hailstorm occurred in June. And uh, 
I scraped enough money together to buy some sorghum sedan grass cowpea seed, went and seeded that. And I literally did not have the money to buy the twine to, to put it up for hay. So we turned the cattle in and grazed it during the winter. And so that worked out so well. I was like, hey, why in the world bother putting up as much uh, process feed? In other words, hey, why not just uh, winter graze these animals, even yeah. here in North Dakota? So I've always been experimenting. Now, failures, yes, too many to count. I mean, I will try literally every year, I'll try a couple different cover crop species. And I have a two strike rule. We'll try, you know, a new species or a new practice twice. If it strikes out both times, then I won't try it a third time. But if it works, we're going to uh, increase its use, in, you know, on our ranch where appropriate. And I think that's the, uh, I think that's the, the key is we have to, keep experimenting and trying things, but only in a way where we're not risking the farmer ranch, so to speak, in doing it. Yeah. I grew up in viticulture in Texas and um, it was similar. You know, it was kind of a little bit of a pioneering area in that there weren't a lot of people growing grapes where we lived. And so my parents would plant, um, a lot of different things and try out different varietals and give them a couple of years and see how they performed. And sometimes you rip them all out and start over. Um, but it's kind of fun. I, I enjoy that process. So your, your work over those 25 plus years led you to, um, this book, which kind of documents that journey. And you set forth at the time, five principles of soil health, which are, universal. And, um, as I've stated, I've, I've spoken to people who are doing, putting these into practice in completely different biomes, not just different States, like totally different areas of the world. You've got, you've influenced people in Australia, all over the place. But recently you told me that you added a sixth, uh, principle. So I'd love for you to go through those for the listeners. Sure. sure. So you're exactly right. Um, and these principles, I didn't create them. They're simply time-tested ecological principles that are constant, as you said, anywhere in the world. You know, I have the good fortune. I get to travel extensively all over the world, and I'm on literally hundreds of farms and ranches. And I tell people, Gabe Brown is not 99% confident this will work anywhere in the world where there's land-based agriculture. I'm 100% confident because it's simply the principles of nature and there's six time-tested ecological principles that occur anywhere where there's land-based agriculture and the the first principle and the one we added is context and i didn't have that one we were talking about it but we we didn't really list it as one of the principles back when i wrote that book but we realized over time it had to be in there because what we're seeing in agriculture is oftentimes farmers and ranchers are doing so out of context. Let me give you an example of that. And I'll use myself. Uh, for 25 years, I was in the purebred cattle business selling bulls. Well, I was calving in North Dakota in January and February in order to get those bull calves to a greater size to sell the following spring. 
well, that makes total no sense whatsoever. You know, calving in the middle of winter, how can that be in context? How is that healthy for the animal? It's uh-huh. not. Now we calve in late May and June, right when deer drop their fawns. That's in context. Okay. I'll give you another example. I was up in Manning, Alberta, Canada. And I don't know if you know where Manning, Alberta is. You fly into Edmonton and drive a day. And when you think you're to the end of the world, you're in Manning, Alberta. (laughs) Well, they were trying to grow soybeans. Why the soybeans are a warm season crop. Grow that in an environment such as Manning, Alberta. That just makes no sense. Mm. And that's one of the big issues in agriculture today. Uh, Here in North Dakota, where I'm at, there's many people who have switched to a straight corn soybean rotation. Those are both warm season crops. We're in a cool season dominant environment. I'm not saying don't grow any of those crops, but they can't be our entire crop rotation. That just makes no sense. So that's the first principle is context. The second principle is least amount of mechanical chemical disturbance possible. You look at nature, yes, nature tills with earthworms and burrowing animals, but not this copious amount of tillage that we use so often in agriculture today. That's totally destructive to a soil ecosystem. Also, the use of these copious amounts of fertilizer and pesticides and fungicides Yes, plants put off chemical signals all the time, but not like we're doing in agriculture today. We need to minimize those and eliminate them if possible. The third principle is that of armoring the soil, covering the soil. Look, walk into a forest. There's a carpet of leaves and pine needles and and you don't see bare soil. Walk into a healthy prairie ecosystem that's covered with dying, decaying plants and residues. Nature always tries to cover the soil. I always use this as an example. People who garden, you go out and you rototill your garden, what happens? Weeds start to grow. That's nature's way of trying to cover the soil. It's trying to protect that soil from wind erosion, water erosion and evaporation. The fourth principle is that of diversity. Nature is very, very diverse, and it's much more collaborative than it is competitive. Yet, what do we do in agriculture? We plant monocultures, you know, monocultures of grain, monocultures of vegetables, monocultures of uh, different trees. Where in nature do you find a monoculture? Usually only where either man put it or mankind's actions have caused it to be. Nature thrives on diversity. And the fifth principle is living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. Nature always tries to have living plants. And the reason is nature has to cycle that solar energy. We got to take copious amounts of sunlight through plant photosynthesis. Plant um, makes all these different carbon compounds and amino acids, et cetera, uses part of those for growth. The rest of it, it translocates to the roots, pumps out into the soil to feed biology and drive the nutrient cycle. And the final principle is animal and insect integration. Fact of the matter is ecosystems do not function properly without animals and insects. You have to have those to have a healthy functioning ecosystem. So as we go around the world, 
we may grow a different crop, we may raise different livestock, but the principles are the same. Though those six principles are constant, no matter where you go. And I challenge anybody to try and prove me otherwise. Fact of the matter is they can't. So this is very simple. Yeah, I saw a video where you you said uh, you'd bet your ranch against uh, anyone else <laughs> that you could yeah. get this to work. <laughs> I opened my big mouth there, but fact of the matter is nobody's taken me up on it. But yeah. I'll be honest, if they do, I, I don't worry at all. And people come, ah, but what about in the desert? We're doing this in the desert. I'll take anybody to Alejandro Carrillo's ranch in the Chihuahuan Desert of Mexico, and and you can walk through grass that's six feet tall. It's amazing. The principles work anywhere. You talked about context up front and uh, and folks growing things where they shouldn't be trying to. Is part of that because of the the U.S. Uh, subsidies that, that give people guaranteed prices for certain crops? Like, why would you decide to put soy in Alberta? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I can't speak to the the farm program in Canada, but it's driven by somewhat oh, yeah. supply and, and demand. US. And, <laughs> yeah. And the other, the other thing in the U S you're exactly right. It is driven by the federal farm program and the federal farm program is very antagonistic to regenerative agriculture because it's based on yield and pounds. It's not based on the quality by that, I mean the nutritional density of what we're producing. And it's certainly not based on ecological outcomes. What is that doing for the environment? And those need to change so we can change agriculture and change the ecosystems for the better. It's interesting that, uh, you know, it makes sense to me that the, the federal government would be a little bit, like you said, antagonistic. Um, but I've heard recently more about major industrial players getting involved, like General Mills, people investing in, um, uh, including I think they've got some involvement with you all, helping you go out and spread the word. Um, they've purchased regenerative ranches. They're kind of getting their hand in that game. And I'm a little bit confused as to what their angle is there. Uh, mm -hmm. It would seem to me that it would be that a lot of those industrial producers would want to discourage folks to switch to regenerative agriculture, uh, at least if we're assuming that they're being that they're thinking in the short term because it would hit their bottom line. So um, yes, our firm Understanding Ag does do work for General Mills, and that started about uh, seven years ago, approximately. They brought a contingency from their corporate office in Minneapolis out to to uh, my ranch to learn about regenerative agriculture. And that team, I give them credit, Jerry Lynch and his team very early on saw that in order for them, General Mills, to have a constant supply of high quality grain, farmers needed to be more resilient. And they uh, fortunately were able to see that, that by using and adopting these regenerative principles, you're going to make your farm or ranch much more resilient, which in turn would mean that General Mills would be able 
to purchase annually a consistent supply of high quality grains. So back uh, just over three years ago, they approached Understanding Ag, wanting to know if we would work with producers to educate them as to these regenerative practices. Now, I got to give General Mills credit here because they're not even requiring the producers to sell product to General Mills. Mm. They just wanted to work in areas. So we started our first product project was with 45 producers in North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, working on what we call the Northern Plains Oats Program, the oats growing region. It's since expanded into Kansas. We have a wheat project going. And in Michigan, we have a project going with them on dairy. Now, because of that initial uh, work with General Mills, many other companies, uh, uh, just in the, this week, I've been on Zooms with four different large food companies talking with them about similar projects and how we can help to make their supply chains more resilient. So it's a good thing because we're getting the companies uh, asking to be involved and they're willing to put some dollars in it. And, and we see in the near term the where these companies will actually be paying premiums for products that are grown in a regenerative manner. Well, that's good to hear. I'm cynical, Gabe. Um, so that's good to hear. I, my hesitation was, I was thinking, you know, hopefully they, they get it. And like you're saying, they're looking long-term at their, uh, their supply chain, but in the short term, uh, what your system has done has allowed you to set prices and to market direct to consumers and to be much more resilient. You're not beholden to, um, the commodity industry so much. And so um, that's where kind of my confusion comes in. I'm like, this doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense well, to me for them to support well, that. But but realize, um, yes, on our ranch, we market all of our products directly to consumers. Not every farmer or rancher wants to do that. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Yeah. So we have to realize that the majority of farmers and ranchers are going to market to a larger company and that company then will process that product and then offer it to the consumer well how do we drive change and one of the things we're laser focused on at understanding ag is how do we drive change large scale to uh, restore not only profitability on the farms and ranches, but also restore ecosystems worldwide. You're not going to do that without big business in the near term. Uh, it's big business that is going to drive that change quicker. So would I rather farmers and ranchers market their products direct? Absolutely. However, I know that it's just as important for us to form those associations and educate those companies also. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've seen a trend there with, um, kind of some major corporations that, you know, your Coca-Cola's and in Walmart and folks like that looking at, um, conservation in a way and putting a tremendous amount of resources into studying, you know, water security and things like that, that, 
you wouldn't think these companies would have a, a vested interest in so much, but, um, you know, they kind of get it at some level. Well, and realize they're yeah. being driven by the consumers. Right. Any of the large companies out there know they better have a program that, um, what I want to say, puts forth what their companies are doing as far as the environment and what are their companies doing for fossil fuel usage and uh, putting carbon back in the soil. And so it's in their best interest to have that story because their consumers are demanding it. Their customers are demanding it. Sure. Yeah. Rightfully so. Um, I do love the idea of taking more market share from the middlemen and from the big industrial players. The idea of more folks doing what you're doing and and selling direct to consumer, I think it would really help things out economically, uh, create a better situation for producers. Well, obviously, I, I believe that that is good for for producers to be able to market their own product and garner more of the the total profit from that. I mean, that's what we do on, on our ranch. And, and, uh, if it fits with the farmer or rancher's context and they want to do that, I'm going to strongly encourage them. Yes. Do that. Yeah. Um, financially, a lot of farmers and ranchers, you always hear about they're, they're just barely scraping by they're living in this kind of cycle of debt where, um, you know, they've got to take on loans to purchase the next quarter of a million dollar piece of equipment or to purchase the seed, whatever it is, um, you would know much better than I. How does your system and how does regenerative ranching help you uh, get out of that cycle of debt? Yeah. So I tell a story how at the end of those four years of crop failures, we were, my family and I were $1.5 million in debt. And uh, we literally did not spend money, write checks. How do you get out of that mountain of debt? And you have to focus and you have to know your costs of production. And then that's one reason we started going down the direct marketing path is how can we capture more dollars? I started selling, growing and selling cover crop seed and these grains, we started direct marketing our beef, lamb and pork, et cetera. And very quickly, we were able to dig out of that mountain of debt and now we're debt free. And, you know, my son is 34 years old, runs the ranch and he's never borrowed money. He's wow. never had to, he operates on cash. Now in saying that he doesn't live a lavish lifestyle. He's extremely frugal, but he needs to be, but that gets him out from the grasp of having to uh, be beholding to a lending institution. And I, you know, we're getting back to farmers and the federal farm program. Part of the issue is 90 plus percent of farmers and ranchers in this country have to borrow money every year just to keep operating. Well, that lending institution is not going to loan them money unless they take part in the federal farm program. And in that federal farm program, of course, you have revenue insurance for certain crops. Well, it's higher for certain crops than others. 
Well, that attracts more people to grow those crops, which only attract, makes for a larger surplus, which only drives down the price, which lowers the amount they can get with, through revenue insurance the next year. Yeah. And I, I often, when I go out and speak, I tell producers, why would I want to grow a commodity that's in a surplus? I want to grow something that I can market for a greater price premium, you know, and that may be, uh, you know, you may grow specialty grains that go into uh, specialty breads or flours. You have farmers and ranchers are very good at production, but by and large, they're very poor business people. You know, there's no company out there that produces a product and then goes, tries to market it. No, first you determine what is there a demand for? Can I produce it? And can I produce it at a price point that returns me a reasonable profit? Yeah. That's the way farmers and ranchers need to start thinking. That that system that you're talking about, the ag system that we that we implement, it kind of seems like it's artificially propping up um, a large part of, of the economy. <laughs> And incentivizing people to to not to farm in nature's image, which you mm-hmm. promote, uh, and to make some decisions that maybe aren't in the best interest of, of the land or themselves. Do you think that deregulating or um, potentially lobbying to to change some of our, our uh, federal policy around farming and the way that we uh, support farming, I guess... Yeah, what do you see as the best path forward there? Well, so I think that that governments, and I'm just using this in a broad sense, are extremely inept and are in a position where they're just dysfunctional. You're talking my language, Gabe. You know, look at the current farm program in the U.S. I mean... What drives that, let's be honest about it, is totally the amount of lobbying that goes on and the billions of dollars that are pumped into efforts to ensure the status quo. You know, the fertilizer industry, the chemical industry, the equipment manufacturers, the grain growing associations themselves, they're all bought into this current production model because they have such a vested interest that they can't just pivot and change quickly. Now, interestingly enough, along that point, I spent time this past year working with uh, uh, the government of the UK, and they're changing their farm program. They're phasing it out by 2025. It'll no longer pay farmers based on yield and pounds. It'll pay farmers based on the ecological services they're providing. So in other words, how much carbon are you taking out of the atmosphere and pumping back into your soils? How much biodiversity is on your farm? Is the water leaving your farm clean or is it high in nitrates and phosphates? I would think now I'm not saying I totally agree with the final legislation they're putting forward, but that mindset needs to uh, become more apparent here in the U S too. That's great to hear. I hadn't really heard about that. I'm surprised, but I will uh, be looking into that. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, 
to that end, what can your average rancher or farmer do um, to to help enact change at the policy mm-hmm. level? I mean, what's the what's the step that you encourage people to start to take? Yeah, and our belief and approach is, uh, quite frankly, we think it has to start with the farmer rancher themselves. They have to adopt these practices and become an example. Next, we have to get the consumers to realize that food truly is preventative medicine. Uh, Agriculture can be used to mitigate the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere, to clean up our watersheds, to produce nutrient-dense food. When consumers start realizing that, and they are, and all we need to do is get about 20% of them to demand that their food and fiber and fuel is produced in a regenerative manner, then you're gonna start really seeing major wholesale change in what companies are demanding and producing. And those companies then will drive the, the, the remaining change on the landscape because they're gonna tell producers, uh, hey, if, if you want us to buy your product, you better be growing and, or raising it in a regenerative manner. So we're starting with a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. And once that happens, the Washington will change because consumers vote. And that vote is the most powerful thing we can do. I asked uh, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures about this, about the, the process. By the way, he speaks very highly of you. Um, the process of certification for regenerative agriculture and he had some strong thoughts on the, on that. I'm interested to get your opinion. Yeah. So um, there are a number of verification programs out there. In our minds, they don't go far enough. And so you will be hearing very shortly about a new verification process program that is going to be announced. And this is a much more inclusive program. It's going to take farmers or ranchers where they're at. Doesn't matter if you're like me, who've been going down this path 25 years, or if you're a conventional producer who wants to change. It'll take them where they're at. They will do baseline. Uh, There will be baseline suite of tests done that determine where their soils are at, where's the biology, where's the biodiversity, you know, everything. And then, a year later, well, that first I should start off, that producer has to have a plan, has to work with uh, someone who has knowledge in the regenerative space to develop a plan on how are they going to adopt these principles to drive the ecosystem processes. So a year later, a verifier will go out and take those same suite of tests and determine are they making progress. And then that producer will have to continue to move forward in order to keep that verification. Uh, We already have a number of companies signed on and our goal is that the companies then will help offset the costs of this and pay producers a premium for their products because they're grown and raised in regenerative in and on regenerative soils uh we're going to announce that program very shortly 
That's great. Yeah, I was wondering about the second half of that. What's the what's the guarantee for or what's the uh, incentive for getting certified? So that's yep. awesome. Well, the incentive is we've proven that regenerative farms and ranches are much more profitable. We can show that. So it's in a farmer's rancher's best interest to move down the regenerative path anyway. The second thing, though, that we think these companies have to be willing to put their money where their mouth is. And if they want that constant supply of high quality products, they should provide contracts to the farmer or rancher, paying them a premium for that high quality product. There has to be buy-in all the way around. Yeah. When people, when you go around um, helping people understand this this way of, of agriculture, what do you find the response is? Because I, from listening to your book, you seem to have a really solid understanding of uh, microbiology and basic chemistry, and you're just kind of a pragmatic dude. You've got a, a good brain for economics and numbers. Like You make it sound simple, but I know that this is a mm-hmm. probably a much more intensive uh, or a much more involved way of working the land. Um, how do you find people respond? Are they able to easily implement this or is this more difficult for a lot of people? Yeah. And I, that's a great question. And I always tell people farmers and ranchers success moving down the regenerative path is directly related to their understanding of how ecosystems function. I mentioned earlier, you know, I went through several years. I have a couple different degrees in college and Nowhere in those four years did they tell me how a soil aggregate is formed. They didn't tell me about the predator-prey relationship in the, in the soil. They didn't explain to me about how a plant pumps out these liquid carbon compounds to attract biology, and the biology actually is what feeds the plant. You know, you need to understand this here as a farmer or rancher, your whole livelihood is dependent on these things, but yet you're not being taught them. You're not going to be taught them by land grant colleges. You're not being taught it by extension agents. You're not being certainly not being taught it by the chemical salesman or the fertilizer salesman. And it's like, yeah. I'll, I'll spin off here just briefly and, and tell you one of the interesting things we do with the large number of clients we have, we do a soil test called a total nutrient extraction or total nutrient digestion. And what that test, you take a soil probe 12 inches into the, into the soil, send it in and lab can analyze it. What's the total amount of nutrients, both inorganic fraction and organic fraction in the soil? Would you believe on those 30 million acres we've tested we have not tested a single farmer ranch that is deficient in any of the nutrients wow no matter of fact we did a some work on the northern plains here with the project we're working on average pounds of nitrogen here in the northern plains in the top 12 inches of the soil profile nine thousand pounds now you go to any agronomist and they're going to recommend you buy some nitrogen fertilizer Why? Because they're only looking at the inorganic fraction. They're not looking at the organic fraction. Hmm. Above every surface acre of the world in the atmosphere is approximately 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen. 
Okay. Nitrogen is not deficient anywhere. What's right. deficient is the biology that's able to convert that organic into inorganic. And so why aren't we being taught this? Why? Well, the fertilizer salesman isn't going to teach you it because then you won't buy fertilizer, right? We need to focus on different things. So that's why we named our company Understanding Ag, because we really think it's a lack of understanding. So producers need to be educated. And one of the things we're very, very good at is that mentoring, that one-on-one -on -one mentoring out in the field, showing a producer, hey, okay, let's put a spade in the ground and let's look at soils. I often tell the story how uh, I've been on this farm since 1983. I have a neighbor who farms 40,000 cropland acres and I have never, ever, not once seen them stick a shovel in the ground. How do they know what their soil looks like? What it's trying to tell them? You know, you yeah. can't. Instead, they farm off a prescription. You know, so much uh, fertilizer, so much seed, so much seed treatment, so much chemical. You know, I tell people a monkey could farm nowadays <laughs> because we have all this automated equipment and it's just program a computer and you can do it. But what does that do for ecosystem function? What does it do for nutrient density and foods, right? It's all these negative effects that are coming off because we don't take the time to learn and understand. Yeah, it's this integrated system of, uh, of conventional agriculture. It, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, you go to med school and they teach you how to treat sick people, um, but they teach you in a way that supports the pharmaceutical industry. They don't teach you basic holistic health and, and nutrition first off because it's not in their best interest. So I think it's important for farmers to understand where they are in that, in that system and why the status quo is what it is. Uh, luckily, there's such a push from the consumer side that I think it's really driving a lot of this, at least it seems like to me. Yes, I, I, that is correct. And the exciting thing is now there's a growing uh, percentage of the medical community that is really beginning to understand and understands that food can and should be used as preventative medicine. We're working with a number in the medical community right now that are actually coming out onto the farms and doing the testing of the plants that are growing on a farm, the soils of the farm, and then testing the products, whether it be grains or fruits, vegetables, pastured proteins, and how diverse is this, uh, uh, are the chemical compounds in these foods? Because it's really that diverse, uh, nutrients that drive human health and feed our gut microbiome and it's really exciting to see some of the uh early data that's coming out of these studies and are because they're shown as we advance soil health we're actually advancing the diversity of all these phytochemicals and phytonutrients that are available then to humans and that is preventative medicine. 
I tell people, you know, use myself as an example. Okay, I'm on the road 280 plus days a year. Uh, last year, even with COVID, I was on 242 flights. Okay, mm-hmm. if somebody's going to get sick, spending that much time in an airport, airplane, and conference center, it should be me. But but why do I, why do I rarely get sick? It's because of what I eat. I mainly take my food with me, and I consume food that's grown and raised in healthy soils. You know, you truly are what your food ate. You know. Yeah, I remember hearing uh, Joel Salatin talk about drinking out of the the stock pond water or something. He's like, I don't get sick. I'm like, all right, man, whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it's 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 just fact. Yeah. If we have a healthy gut microbiome. Well, look at viruses, okay, uh, in our gut at any time, there's 10 to the 30th power number of different viruses in our gut. Well, why aren't we sick all the time? Well, fact of the matter is you have uh, a healthy gut microbiome, you're going to have the defense mechanism where those viruses just don't cause an issue. Yeah. A couple more questions here, Gabe. Uh, In February 2021, you testified before Congress on agriculture and climate change. What were your takeaways from that experience? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons Gabe Brown has no hair, you know, is that uh, it was really disappointing to me to see uh, agriculture could play a very positive role in mitigating climate change. But what I saw there from that five plus hours of testimony was you have one side of the aisle who is screaming climate change. You have another side of the aisle that's screaming low farm profitability. And I'm sitting there, you goofballs, you both want the same thing. Because if we would move down farmers down the regenerative path, they would be able to take more carbon out of the atmosphere, put it into the soil where it can drive the nutrient cycle, can store more water. We can increase farm profitability. You want the same thing, but the both sides are too bullheaded to even think about coming together. One of the things we're working on understanding ag, we have a slogan, common ground for common good. We believe that society can agree on 80% of the things, you know, we all want clean drinking water, right? We all want nutrient dense food. We all want safety. We all want food security, you know? Well, why can't we come together then and work on this through regenerative agriculture? And I challenged the committee. I said, agriculture is part of the problem. No doubt about that. But agriculture can be a major part of the solution. The challenge I put before them was to make a difference, to realize the potential of regenerative agriculture. Now, uh, most of the the representatives in that meeting, all they cared about is what their constituents think and how do they get their constituents votes. In saying that, I had a number of them reach out to me afterwards from both sides of the aisle Mm. wanting to learn more. So that's that's a good thing. So I don't want to say that it was all in vain, but it is extremely frustrating. When I started this podcast uh, almost a year ago, I told myself I was going to avoid politics, but um, it's impossible. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. I mean, so much of what I'm interested in, of course, has uh, major ramifications and um, in the political sphere. I'm wondering if there's a uh, more of a, you know a better response or, or maybe more bipartisanship at the state level than at the federal level. There often is, and if you look, there's some groups doing really good work to enact healthy soils legislation, it's often called, in a lot of different states around the country. And we're really focused. We will work with anyone. doesn't matter your political affiliation, race, creed, color, religion. We don't care. You know, common ground, common good. You know, obviously, we all have our opinions politically and otherwise, but that shouldn't come into play when we're talking about uh, the good for society and the good for farmers and ranchers, good for consumers. Okay, it it doesn't politics just don't matter. So let's leave that aside and concentrate on all the things we can agree on. Agreed. Uh, lastly, can you tell me about your other endeavors? You've mentioned uh, Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy. For the, for the people who might be interested in learning a little bit more about those, what are those all about? Sure. So Understanding Ag is our for-profit consulting company. Uh, we consult all over North America and, and some other foreign countries as well. Uh, there's five partners that own Understanding Ag, and we have a cadre of consultants who work uh, with us and for us. And what we're doing there is we're working with farmers, ranchers, communities, organizations to move regenerative ag forward on the ground. Okay, You can go on our Understanding Ag website. I encourage you to look at the resource page. We have a lot of free webinars we put on that educate in different topics on regenerative ag. Our nonprofit is Soil Health Academy. Soil Health Academy is run by a board of directors who uh, help put on events to educate anyone who will listen. We hold academies all across the United States and you can look on the soilhealthacademy.org website to find out more information about that. And then we're we're launching our new verification business shortly. So watch for that uh, coming up. Uh, We're excited about it in the fact that we think it's the best chance to drive meaningful change large scale, not only in North America, but around the world. Beautiful. Yeah, and I encourage anyone who, uh, whether you're farming or not, or if you're just interested in hearing more about this, uh, read or listen to the book, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. Did I get the subtitle right? That's correct. Yeah, narrated by you, which I always enjoy. Uh, That kind of (laughs) adds a little bit for me. Uh, And then also you were in the film Kiss the Ground, which was a recent Netflix documentary narrated by Woody Harrelson, of all people and kind of focusing on regenerative agriculture worldwide. Yes, yeah. and that was actually filmed about seven and eight years ago. Oh. And it started out, I wasn't involved early on, it was uh, to be a film about organic agriculture. And then the producers, uh, Josh and Rebecca Tickell, reached out to Ray Archuleta, 
uh, Ray, the soil guy, wanted to learn more about soils. And then Ray told him, well, you got to go to Gabe's ranch. And so uh, they ended up up here and, and we convinced the producers that it was much more than organic. It was about the ecosystems and how they function. And so the movie kind of morphed into one where it focused on the possibilities of regenerative agriculture. Now, I want to put a tease out there in that a sequel, so to speak, uh, is being filmed now, and it's called Common Ground. And uh, one of my clients who uh, really has an interest in doing the right thing reached out to me after he watched Kiss the Ground. He said, Gabe, that was really good, but I think we can do better. <laughs> and so he had me introduce him to Josh and Rebecca, and they came to an agreement. He is funding the movie, and this movie is being filmed. Uh, I believe they were already on over 25 different locations, but it's primarily on clients of Understanding Ag and their stories and their journeys. And, you know, from a family perspective, from an ecological perspective, a farm and ranch all the way to consumers. And the, the reason we need to come together and find common ground for common good. Uh, we hope to have that that movie will be released next March. So in just over a year from now. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Uh, admittedly, I've only seen the part of Kiss the Ground that you're in. I, in, For time constraints, I had to skip to that part. Um, so I need to go back and see the whole thing. But uh, that's excellent. And Gabe, I really appreciate your time here in this hour. I've, I've learned a ton from you. And um, I... I appreciate you spreading the good word up there in North Dakota and all over the world. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being with you today. Likewise. Likewise.